Section 13 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 4, Part 1. The Queen remained in ignorance, not only of the death of her husband, but of every particular relating to his trial, until February 18th, 1648-49. She was beleaguered in the Louvre, in double circles of siege and counter-siege. That portion of the French troops, still loyal to Anne of Austria and her son, the young king, besieged the insurgent city of Paris. But the Frangeurs, knowing that the Queen of England warmly favored the royal party, kept strict guard and watch round her residence, in order to prevent any communication between her and the court at Saint-Germain. Thus was all intelligence cut off, since it was not without the greatest personal risk that any agent of Queen Henrietta could pass both circles. Nevertheless, despite of siege and counter-siege, rumor had carried the portentous tidings to the Louvre, and it was whispered, only too truly, in the Queen's household. But the agonized hope, to which Henrietta still clung, was so pitiable, that no one would mention the dreadful report, which had not yet received official confirmation. No one of her household dared plunge her into the despair they dreaded, without being sure that the fact was past dispute. Lord German, however, thought he could prepare her for the worst, by inventing a rumor that the king had been tried, condemned, and even led to execution, but that his subjects had risen en masse, torn him from the scaffold, and preserved his life. Unfortunately, this tale raised no alarm, but rather increased the false hopes in the sanguine mind of the queen. She knew, she said, how dearly the king was beloved by many, who were ready still to sacrifice life and fortune in his service, and she was sure, now the crisis had come, that the great body of his subjects, to whom he was really dear, would be roused into activity by the cruelty of his persecutors, and that all for the future would go well. While this terrible suspense continued, James, Duke of York, suddenly made his appearance at the Louvre. He came in while the queen was at dinner, says Father Cyprian, knelt down and asked his mother's blessing, for such is always the custom of English children, when they have been absent for any time from their parents. The queen received him with transports of joy. She had, some time previously, written to him to expedite his arrival, but the tumultuous state of Paris had prevented his journey. He was guided to the arms of the queen, his mother, by Sir John Denham, the cavalier poet. Greatly exhilarated by the arrival of her favorite son, the queen rose on the morning of February 18th, with the determination that a fresh effort should be made to obtain tidings of her husband. She entreated a brave and faithful gentleman of her household to proceed to Saint-Germain to ascertain what news the Queen Regent had lately received from London. The messenger accordingly undertook the perilous service of passing and repassing both circles of besiegers and set off for Saint-Germain-en-Laye, where the court of France was then resident. Those who knew the dreadful secret anticipated the agonizing scene that would ensue if the messenger ever succeeded in making his way back. And after Père Gamache had said grace after dinner, Lord German entreated him not to retire, but to stay to offer the yet unconscious widow all the consolation she could derive from the ministers of her religion. Oh, the dull anguish of those hours of suspense, 
when the shadow of the fatal event was casting its gloom over part of the assembly and the heart of her most concerned in the approaching tidings was still agitated by the sharp pangs of hope the actual truth had been communicated to pere gamache who thus had nothing to distract his observation from the effect of the authentic tidings on the mind of the hapless queen but what words can we find so forcibly to delineate this climax of a royal tragedy as those of him who drew it from the life at this grievous intelligence says the pere gamache i felt my whole frame shudder and was forced to turn aside from the royal circle where conversation went on for an hour on divers matters without any subject being started which had the effect of diverting the mind of the queen from the dire inquietude under which it was secretly oppressed at last she complained piteously of the tardiness of her messenger and said that he ought to have returned before with his tidings then lord jermyn spoke the gentleman dispatched on this errand he said is known to be so faithful and so prompt in executing all your majesty's commands that if he had had aught but very disastrous tidings he would have been in your presence ere this whatever they may be replied the queen i see that you know them full well i do indeed know somewhat replied lord jermyn then the queen dreadfully alarmed entreated him to speak less darkly and after many circumvolutions and ambiguous words he at length explained the horrid truth to her who never expected such intelligence oh the cruel kindness of those who undertake to break calamitous tidings by degrees and yet sudden death has been known to follow such a tale too bluntly told and indeed the communication as it was almost stopped the springs of life when the widowed queen at length was brought to comprehend her loss she stood continues pere gamache motionless as a statue without words and without tears a great philosopher has said that ordinary griefs allow the heart to sigh and the lips to murmur but that extraordinary afflictions terrible and fatal cast the soul into stupor and by locking up the senses make the tongue mute and the eyes tearless if the good father had been like charles i himself a reader of shakespeare he would have described the state into which the royal widow was plunged by that exquisite quotation the grief that cannot speak whispers the o'erfraught heart and bids it break to all our exhortations and arguments the pair continues our queen was deaf and insensible at last awed by her appalling grief we ceased talking and stood round her in perturbed silence some sighing some weeping all with mournful and sympathizing looks bent on her immovable countenance so we continued till nightfall when the duchess of vendome whom our queen tenderly loved came to see her weeping she took the hand of the royal widow and tenderly kissed it and at last succeeded in awakening her from the stupor of grief into which she had been plunged since she had comprehended the dreadful death of her husband she was able to sigh and weep and soon expressed a desire to retire from the world to indulge in the profound sorrow she suffered her little daughter was with her and her maternal love found it hard to separate from her yet she longed to withdraw into some humble abode where she might weep at will at last she resolved to retire with a few of her ladies into the convent of the carmelites faubourg saint jacques in paris 
before henrietta went to the convent her friend madame de motteville obtained leave to see her it was the day after she had learned the fatal tidings madame de motteville's friends had made interest with the frangeurs to permit her departure from paris to join her royal mistress the queen regent of france she was anxious to know if the afflicted queen of england had any message to send to her royal relatives i was she says admitted to her bedside where i fell on my knees and she gave me her hand amidst a thousand sobs which often choked her speech she commanded me to tell my queen the state in which i found her that king charles her lord whose death made her the most afflicted woman on the wide earth had been lost because none of those whom he trusted had told him the truth and that a people when irritated was like a ferocious beast whose rage nothing can moderate as the king her lord had just proved and that she prayed god that the queen regent might be more fortunate in france than she and king charles had been in england but above all she counselled her to hear the truth and to labour to discover it for she believed that the greatest evil that could befall sovereigns was to rest in ignorance of the truth which ignorance reverses thrones and destroys empires that if i was really faithful to my queen that is anne of austria i should tell her these things and speak to her clearly on the state of her affairs and she finished with an affectionate remembrance i was to make to my queen in her name then the afflicted queen gave me some orders relative to the interests of the young king her son become charles the second through the lamentable death of his father she entreated that he might be recognized as such by the king and queen of france and that her second son james duke of york might receive the same entertainment as the king his brother had previously done as she reiterated these requests she wrung my hand and said to me with a burst of grief and tenderness i have lost a king a husband and a friend whose loss i can never sufficiently mourn and this separation must render the rest of my life a perpetual torture i avow that the tears and words of this afflicted queen touched me deeply besides the sympathy i felt in her grief i was astonished at the words she commanded me to repeat to my queen and the calamities she seemed to foresee for us nor did i ever forget the discourse of this princess who enlightened by adversity seemed to presage for us such disasters heaven avert them from us but we merited them all from the justice of god thus does madame de motteville clearly indicate that this warning message which was duly repeated by her from the mourning queen of england in the depth of her misery to the queen regent of france had the effect of delaying that awful revolution which in these our latter days ravaged france and which is yet rife in the memory of many of our contemporaries in the present century often did queen henrietta say to me that she was astonished how she ever could survive the loss of charles when she so well knew that life could contain after this calamity nothing but bitterness for her i have lost a crown she would say but that i had long before ceased to regret it is the husband whom i grieve good just wise virtuous as he was most worthy of my love and that of his subjects the future must be for me but a continual succession of misery and afflictions 
it had been well if those historians who choose to represent this queen as indifferent to her husband had taken the trouble to read the testimony of this witness of her conduct and at the same time to have identified how worthy the virtuous life and noble sentiments of that witness made her of belief for without the least democratic bias madame de motteville moderately but firmly indicates that there were abuses needful to be reformed in the government both of france and england which could only be effected by the sovereigns of either country acquainting themselves with facts as they existed and conscientiously learning the truth of all that was going on under their government most faithfully as a true friend of humanity has she preserved the testimony of queen henrietta maria uttered in the agony of bereaved affections that if her husband and herself had learned the truth in time much of their own sufferings and those of their people might have been averted queen henrietta continues her friend had enlightened and noble sentiments in consequence she keenly felt all that she had lost and all she owed to the memory of a king and husband who had so tenderly loved her who had given her his entire confidence and had always considered her above all persons he had shared with her his grandeur and prosperity and it was but just as she said that she should take her part in the bitterness of his adversity and sorrow for him as if his death had taken place each day that she lived to the last hour of her life in fact she wore a perpetual widow's mourning for him on her person and in her heart this lasting sadness those who knew her were well aware was a great change from her natural disposition which was gay gladsome and apt to see all the ordinary occurrences of life in a bright and cheerful light from that hour she surnamed herself la malheureuse reine the royal widow left the louvre amidst the tears and sobs of her attendants for her temporary retirement with the carmelite nuns faubourg saint jacques her last words were to commend her little daughter the princess henrietta to her affectionate governess the countess of morton charging her to take care of her manners and conduct while to me that is pere gamache she left the instruction of this royal infant directly she entered into the convent she gave herself up to prayer to mortification and a course of meditation on the inscrutability of the decrees of god the inconstancy and fragility of human life and of the riches grandeur and honors of this world too soon was she roused from the holy calm which such salutary exercises give to sorrow the affairs of the king her son and of her own family and household being in so bad a state that they commanded her utmost care her wisest counsel and even active exertions and i was obliged to seek her to urge her to leave her peaceful retirement with the nuns and return to the louvre at that time her son charles the second was at the hague where he was recognized as king by the states of holland it was the wish of the young king to remain there but the strong military despotism of cromwell was too formidable to the states of holland to suffer it the queen wrote to her son to come to her he arrived in the summer of sixteen forty nine the mother and son had their first interview at saint germain and afterwards she returned with him to her abode at the louvre two of the royal children remained prisoners in england one of these was the hapless princess elizabeth the other the little duke of gloucester they were soon after for a few months consigned to the care of their mother's former favorite the treacherous lady carlisle 
who for none of her good deeds had been favored by parliament with the grant of eight thousand pounds per annum for their maintenance but with a strict charge that they were to be deprived of all princely distinction we now and then gather the movements of henrietta from the narrative of her niece mademoiselle de montpensier it is well known that gaston duke of orleans secretly favored the fronde and maintained a species of facetious neutrality between the queen regent and the parisians he chose to be the arbiter between the people and the court gaston affirmed that his sister queen henrietta took the part of anne of austria against the fronde he strove to rid himself of her embarrassing presence in paris where she unwove the meshes his shallow ambition was spinning he was however a character whose affections always ran counter to his policy he was angry with henrietta but finally forgave her she declared that both loyalty and gratitude obliged her to espouse the cause of the court but that her advice was pacific in regard to the people we have the evidence of madame de motteville that such was truly the case mademoiselle de montpensier made charles the second feel her resentment for her political pique with his mother he was still endeavouring to gain her hand one day soon after the triumphant return of mademoiselle de montpensier from orleans where she had really done much good by her intrepid decision in a moment of great popular excitement queen henrietta addressed these remarkable words to her i am not astonished that you saved orleans from the hands of its enemies for the pucelet had in the old times set you that example and like the pucelet of orleans you began the matter by chasing the english for before you went thither my son was chassé by you i paid my duty to her as my aunt as mademoiselle de montpensier but i was forced to be less frequent in my visits to her for it is not pleasant to dispute perpetually with persons that one ought to respect although Condé and the heads of the fronde held the queen in great estimation the rabble of the frangeurs pursued her with insults whenever she appeared beyond the gates of the louvre at last she would go out no more but remained in a state of siege suffering a thousand privations with a patience which silenced all murmurs among her household who often observed that whilst their queen seemed so satisfied they ought not to complain henrietta found herself however so useful to the queen regent that she would not quit her sojourn at the louvre though alarmed for her safety she was perpetually entreated to come to saint-germain and share what they had there once or twice henrietta went to saint-germain to visit the queen regent and the young king she was however glad to take the escort of her fantastic niece mademoiselle de montpensier at that time heroine of the fronde who conducted her to the gate of the chateau of saint-germain on one of these occasions mademoiselle de montpensier makes a great merit of reconciling her father the duke of orleans to queen henrietta at last henrietta found it was impossible to remain longer at the louvre and retired finally to saint-germain her journey was a very dangerous one the people menaced her as she went through paris and her creditors threatened to arrest her coach this scene which was perhaps more trying to the generous spirit of henrietta than all her other misfortunes is confirmed by the malignant exultation of the roundhead newspapers from the superabundance of spite in the republican party is to be learned the fact that the young king in his deep mourning for his murdered sire rode by the side of his mother's coach 
and guarded her person in this dangerous transit the enemies of the royal exiles seemed to think that the reproach of poverty would make all the world view a circumstance so deeply interesting with the scorn they did themselves the royal children of france with the queen regent came to chateau to welcome the unfortunate henrietta and her son after their perilous and miserable journey and they conducted her to her apartments in the old chateau of saint germain which were in all probability the same angle looking over the partre and place des arms of saint germain which was subsequently more celebrated as the place of her son james the second's last exile the melancholy old chateau desolate and degraded as it is at present has survived the gay sunny palace of recent date built on the terrace above the seine by henri cotte and looking out over the pleasant land of france Anne of Austria would not live in the old grim castle, because it affected her health, and indeed the stone trench surrounding it, which was at that time full of water, must have been injurious to Queen Henrietta, who often suffered from pulmonary maladies. The sojourn of Queen Henrietta at Saint-Germain proved, however, but a temporary visit. The fury of the civil war abated. Her mediation became so needful with Condé and Lorraine, that she in the summer returned to paris and was actually there august eighteenth sixteen forty nine when anne of austria and her young son louis the fourteenth made their grand entry into the metropolis after giving an audience of forgiveness to the principal frangeurs they paid a state visit of condolence to queen henrietta on the death of her husband these royal relatives when they had previously met at saint-germain had found opportunity to discuss the melancholy subject therefore nothing was mentioned likely to agonize the feelings of henrietta the young king of england observes madame de motteville was there in his deep mourning for his father it was his first formal state recognition at the court of france early in september this prince resolved to set out for the isle of jersey which still with its sister islands acknowledged its allegiance to the royal house of stuart from thence he resolved to pass to scotland or ireland the queen was greatly averse to this scheme and reproached her son and sir edward hyde that is clarendon with neglect of her advice at that time her differences had not arisen to any great height with hyde she expressed her esteem for his great integrity and devoted love to her late husband and said that she wished he would always be near the young king because he would she knew deal plainly and honestly with him and advise him to live virtuously it was agreed by charles the second's privy council that chancellor hyde should depart on an embassy to spain to supplicate for assistance against the english regicides queen henrietta expressed her regret that the means and times of this valuable minister should be thus wasted she said that if they would listen to her advice she could tell them beforehand that they would find the court of spain cold and unwilling to render any assistance this the chancellor owns he found by experience was exactly the case the queen and the chancellor seldom agreed yet she always rendered justice to his uncompromising sincerity one day at this juncture when talking of her affairs among her ladies a dangerous habit which she never left off her majesty expressed some resentment towards a person who had been influential in the council of the late king who always spoke the fairest words to her and courteously promised compliance with all her wishes even suggesting to her to ask of her husband 
indulgences she had never thought of before yet she found out soon after that he was the only man who advised the king privately to deny her the very same favors some of the queen's ladies had a great curiosity to know who this double dealer was but the queen persisted in concealing his name one of the ladies present said that she hoped it was not chancellor hyde no replied her majesty be sure it is not him for he never uses flattering compliments to me i verily believe that if by my conduct he deemed that i deserved the most infamous name he would not scruple to call me by it the lady repeated this saying to the chancellor who was much pleased with the queen's opinion of him the young king notwithstanding all his mother's remonstrances persisted in his intention of venturing into his lost dominions to seek his fortune queen henrietta was alarmed the youth of her son and the desperate state of their party in england took from her all hopes of success and as she found that he would not listen to her she desired lord jermyn to represent the danger to him the young prince replied it is far better for a king to die in such an enterprise than to wear away life in shameful indolence here the high resolve and daring adventures so frequently undertaken by charles the second before he was twenty form remarkable contrasts to the indolence and reckless profligacy in which his manly years were wasted charles the second went to jersey in september sixteen forty nine with his brother james duke of york and was proclaimed king of great britain in the loyal channel islands scotland being offended at cromwell's recent change of the british kingdoms into a republic sent deputies to negotiate with charles the second who received and conferred with them at jersey and this proved the commencement of his temporary recognition in scotland and of the series of wild and daring adventures in which he engaged from his landing in scotland till his escape after the battle of worcester a large portion of the irish people were desirous that the attempt of the king should be made on their shores which was doubtless the reason why cromwell visited that devoted island with the fierce scourges of fire confiscation and the exterminating sword in the year of blood sixteen forty nine a visitation which drew from a noble english historian albeit never too sympathizing in the case of ireland the appalling comment that since the middle of the sixteenth century the miseries of that country could only be compared with those of the jews after the taking of jerusalem a foreboding instinct warned the royal mother to prevent the reckless courage of her young son from leading him among these scenes of horror queen henrietta did not believe the time ripe for movement but she advised her son if he ventured to bend his course to scotland rather than to ireland they parted but it lists not here to tell aught of the passionate regrets that broke from the sad prince or perils that befell him in his wanderings nor of that famed oak in the deep solitudes of boscobel the health of the queen sunk under the reiterated trials which marked the dreadful year of sixteen forty nine she went to the bath of bourbon the same autumn that she parted from her son on her way thither she passed through moulin the retreat of her friend the duchess of montmorency whose calamitous widowhood bore some resemblance to her own this illustrious lady was nearly related to henrietta's mother being a princess of the house of orsini she had dedicated her youth her beauty and her life to the memory of her lost husband the last duke of montmorency 
it is well known that cardinal richelieu laid the foundation of his despotism on the ashes of that hero the widow of charles i could trace the commencement of her sorrows to the malign influence of that same stony-hearted politician in the spirit of sympathy the queen went to the convent of the visitation at moulin where in a chamber hung with black the widow of montmorency kept watch over the urn that held the heart of her murdered husband although that true heart had been cold in death for many a long year the widow of montmorency was as popular in france for her charity and piety as her husband had been for his valor and heroic qualities all mourners sought the duchess de montmorency for consolation no one needed it more than the royal widow of charles i the illustrious kinswomen wept together and received consolation from the sympathy of each other henrietta maria had given over her son for lost after the battle of worcester the particulars of his return are thus mentioned by her flippant niece mademoiselle de montpensier all the world went to console the queen of england but this only augmented her grief for she knew not if her son were a prisoner or dead this inquietude lasted not long she learned that he was at rouen and would soon be at paris upon which she went to meet him on her return i thought my personal inquiries could not be dispensed with therefore i went without my hair being dressed since i had a great deflection the queen when she saw me said that i should find her son very ridiculous since he had to save himself in disguise cut his hair off and had assumed an extraordinary garb at that moment he entered and i really thought he had a very fine figure and saw great improvement in his mien since we last parted although his hair was short and his moustaches long which indeed causes a great alteration in the appearance of most people lady fanshawe was at the court of the exiled queen at the time of the return of her son after an absence of upward of two years she says he had attained a majestic stature and had grown manly and powerful in person coarse in features and reckless in expression all his rich curls had been cut off for the purpose of disguise and were replaced by a black periwig he was far more changed in character than appearance all the high heroic sentiments derived from the classics all the noble romance of youth which usually brings forth grand fruits in manhood were obliterated by his visit to his native land mademoiselle de montpensier found to her astonishment that her mute cousin charles the second had in his absence from france learned to speak the french tongue with the utmost volubility and while she says we walked together in the great gallery which connects the louvre with the tuileries he gave me the history of all his adventures and escapes in scotland and england in which to her french imagination nothing was so marvellous as that the scotch should fancy that it was a crime to play the fiddle the morning after this promenade queen henrietta gravely renewed with this princess the subject of her son's passion she said to her that she had reproved charles but that he still persisted in loving her all this infinitely flattered the vanity of la grande mademoiselle but touched not her heart charles was too cool a lover to please her but she coquetted with the anxious mother and paraded her hopes of being the empress of germany or the queen of france many a bitter pang did this heartless woman give the fallen queen of great britain by her own account sometimes henrietta would observe to her 
that her son once the heir of the finest country in the world was now considered too beggarly and pitiful to aspire to the hand of the rich heiress of domes and montpensier then sighing the unfortunate henrietta would narrate all the wealth state and luxury of a queen in england at this narration the purse-proud heiress owns that she deliberated within herself whether she should make a merit of accepting the young king in his distress but then the doubt was whether his restoration would ever take place which doubt finally turned the scale against the royal exile the unfortunate widow of charles i found that she had in vain administered food to the vanity of her niece who liked her son well enough to be jealous of him but not well enough to make the slightest sacrifice in his behalf the contest that charles the second had maintained for his hereditary rights from sixteen forty nine to sixteen fifty one caused his young sister and brother who still remained prisoners in england to be treated with additional harshness by their jailers the republicans reports arrived at the queen's court that cromwell talked of binding her little son the duke of gloucester apprentice to a shoemaker and that her daughter that young budding beauty the princess elizabeth was to be taught the trade of a button-maker there really was some discussion in the house of commons relative to the maintenance of these royal orphans in which cromwell said that as to the young boy it would be better to bind him to a good trade but the nearest approach to their degradation was that the young prince's servants were directed to address him only as master harry at his tender years a top or even a marble more or less is more of consequence than a title or a dukedom but the young prince was neither harmed in mind nor body by his republican jailers the fair young princess elizabeth was unfortunately of an age when the reverses of fortune are felt as keenly nay more so than at a more advanced period of life perhaps her death-wound was inflicted by the agony she suffered at the touching interviews with her father interviews which drew tears down cromwell's iron cheeks it may be supposed gave mortal pangs to the tender mind of the young bereaved daughter the princess was says pere gamache of a high and courageous spirit and possessed a proud consciousness of the grandeur of her birth and descent the anguish she felt at her father's murder was still farther aggravated when she was forced from the palace of st james the place of her birth and carried to carisbrook castle the scene of his saddest imprisonment from whence he was dragged to die she perpetually meditated on his bitter sufferings and all the disasters of her royal house till she fell into a slow but fatal fever when she found herself ill she resolutely refused to take medicine her little brother master harry as he was called was her only companion she expired alone sitting in her apartment at carisbrook castle her fair cheek resting on a bible which was the last gift of her murdered father and which had been her only consolation in the last sad months of her life sir theodore mayern her father's faithful physician came to prescribe for her but too late he has made the following obituary memorial of the death of this princess saying she died on the eighth of september sixteen fifty in her prison at the isle of wight of a malignant fever which constantly increased despite of medicine and remedies the queen her mother resumes pere cyprian gamache did not learn the sad death of the young princess elizabeth without shedding abundance of tears but the grief of her brothers the duke of york and the king bore testimony to the fine qualities this beautiful princess possessed 
all the royal family had considering her great talents and the charms of her person reckoned on her as a means of forming some high alliance which would better their fortunes her lot was however very different she was doomed in her opening flower of life to know all a true steward's heritage of woe the young elizabeth's melancholy death occurred in her fifteenth year she was buried obscurely in newport on the twenty fourth of september sixteen fifty end of section thirteen